Today's sermon is a message of hope in times like these. Hope for those who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Our passage in Luke quotes another passage in Isaiah, one that bears the same message of hope for those who believe. And I read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The word of the Lord. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 37 uh, this morning. Let me talk to you for a minute about great expectations. If you read the Dickens novel, Uh, You know that the primary character is a young man named Pip. Uh, Pip wanted nothing more from life than to be rich and to be part of the aristocratic set. Uh, And in his pursuit of all that, he managed to abandon all of his friends. Uh, In his pursuit of the high life, he left everything he was and everything he knew behind. Uh, And in the end, he had lost any chance at love. He was in love with a woman that was incapable of loving him, the woman that loved him he had left behind because she just wasn't part of the set that he wanted to be a part of. And what Pip found out was that when his expectations were met, when he became rich, when he became accepted into that level of society, he was disappointed. It didn't bring, didn't bring happiness to him at all. Uh, so once he realized his expectations He was still empty. So I think it's easy for us to have expectations. We have expectations about life. We have expectations about the people around us. We have expectations. Maybe we have some expectations about what is going to happen in this unusual season that we're in. And many of us may have expectations of God and what our relationship with him is going to be like. So here's our question for today. What do you expect? What do you expect? Now, as you ponder that, let me do a quick review. Last week, we, we saw Jesus go through the temptation. We, we saw what happened to him out in the wilderness. And we saw that he had victory over Satan simply by quoting Scripture. We saw that he fought the battle so that we wouldn't have to fight that battle. Jesus is in us. And if we depend on him for our strength and, and for our perseverance, he will support us. And we found out that, in addition to all that, that for Warrington Bible Fellowship, and I'm sure for a lot of other churches uh, across the United States, maybe around the world, that God has prepared us for this particular season. If you take a look at our history over the last couple of years and uh, the, the things that have happened and the things that have become available to us, we find out that God has made us ready for this time. 
This, brothers and sisters, this is our time. And we can depend on Him, not just to get us through this season, but for the, for, to help make the church all that it's supposed to be. So we need to know right now that the church is not a victim of the coronavirus. We're not victims. This is our opportunity. This is our golden moment to be messengers of God's love, ambassadors of, of Jesus Christ, and, and vessels of grace and mercy. So as we, as we see how Jesus begins His ministry in this passage and how His actions defy all the expectations of the people that were closest to Him, our sermon is called Great Expectations. This is part nine of our series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. So our passage today has three venues. Uh, there is the, the town of Nazareth, a very small town back then, probably a couple hundred people living in it, uh, a hill in the town of Nazareth and the, the small town of Capernaum. And so we're going to see three important reactions in those venues. We're going to see the proclamation of Jesus Christ, his reaction to the calling that's been laid upon him. We will see the rejection, uh, and a proclamation occurs in Nazareth. The rejection of Jesus Christ and who he is occurs on the hill in Nazareth, and then we will see the demonstration of who exactly Jesus is in the town of Capernaum. So we saw last week in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee. Uh, he was initiated and he was consecrated for it. And now Luke is going to zoom in and give us a close look at what Jesus's message is and what the details of it are. Now, this is just the beginning of his message. It's not the full message, but he's kind of starting to lay the groundwork for what his ministry is going to be. So let's take a look at this proclamation that occurs in Nazareth, at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, this event comes a little bit later in the uh, Gospel of Mark. Um, and as we found out uh, a couple years ago when we looked at the Gospel of John, Luke, like John, plays a little loose with the chronology. Uh, he'll move events around because he's more interested in making a point about who Jesus is and what he came to do than he is in thinking linearly. Now, this is kind of hard for us to accept. Uh, because our Western minds think very linearly. We want to know what happened then and what happened after that and what happened after that. That's not just the way Eastern minds think. So uh, it doesn't really matter where in this occurred. Uh, what matters is what Luke is trying to inform us of in what happens in this event here. So uh, there's a service going on in the synagogue. This would be on Shabbat, the Sabbath. It would be on Saturday. And the service would have started with a recitation of the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter four, 6, verses 4 through 9. There would then be some prayers. Then there would be readings from the law and from the prophets. Then there would be a homily, uh, a sermon delivered by either the ruler of the synagogue or one of the priests or one of the Levites, and that would be based on the primary reading for the day. And then there would be seven people who would read. Now, if there was a priest and a Levite, they would be the first readers. And then the other five readers would be Jews who had come into the service. And they would all be chosen by the, the 
a ruler of the synagogue or by his assistant. And it was required for the readers to stand. Uh, and they would read one to three verses. They wouldn't read long passages, just be one to three verses. And then the text would be, in, in the first century, the text would be translated in Aramaic, the local language, uh, so that everybody could understand it. And after the readings took place, there would be an invitation to teach. And the, the teaching could be done by any qualified male. Uh, just as an aside, uh, in order for the teaching to be done by any qualified male, there had to be a group of more than 10 people. So it's kind of a little foreshadow of what we have here today. As long as they had at least 10 people, they had a full service. If there were less than 10 people, then the teaching would be done by the priest or the Levite. So Jesus stands up and reads, and he's doing what is expected of him. Uh, he takes the posture of somebody who is going to recite Scripture. Now, he had probably told the assistant to the ruler what he was going to read. That was a customary practice. And, and then the, the, rule, the assistant would then go grab the appropriate scroll and bring it to the reader. So in verse 17, we see, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, again, we talked about this last week. One of the undercurrents in Luke is the Holy Spirit. We see him uh, uh, applied time and time again. That we, we need to know. Luke wants us to understand that the Spirit is moving, that there's something happening. So, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me and uh, this is another sub-theme of Luke, the idea of anointing. We saw that in, in Jesus' infancy when he was taken to uh, the temple. We saw it in the baptism. We'll see it again in the passage that we'll look at next week. So he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that's a powerful passage. And it's from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Kind of. See, Jesus doesn't read the whole text. He, he, he just chooses certain phrases out of that passage. And then he throws in another phrase from Isaiah 58, verse 6. And, and the Jews believe those passages to be about uh, redemption for their nation, uh, the advent of a new eschatological uh, age. So th they believe them to be about the end times, what we would call it today. So the phrases that Jesus uses in this passage, though, are not one of national deliverance. He's not speaking about national deliverance. He's talking about personal deliverance. Uh, so if you take a look, a careful reading shows that it, it, it's good news to the poor. It's freedom to the imprisoned. And the phrasing harkens back to chapter 1, verse 77, where that freedom is defined as forgiveness of sins. And the third element of this is sight to the blind. So Jesus is talking about personal transformation. So Jesus' radical reading and rearranging of the text gets the attention of the men in the synagogue. Their ears are perked up. So by combining 
Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, though there is a rebuke in all that, particularly in Isaiah 58, the overall message that Jesus is sending is of comfort and deliverance and restitution and freedom. What remains to be seen is what they're going to be free from. They have some expectations. And what Jesus may be doing may be different than his expectations. But Jesus hasn't only reworked the passage here, he has personified it. He is the one who will deliver. He is the one who will usher in the new age. Well, that proclamation that he just made leads to the rejection in his hometown and will go to the hill. So watch how all this rolls out. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, everybody in the synagogue knew that those verses were about redemption. They were about salvation. But they also knew that the verses following each passage was about judgment. So not only did Jesus leave out that part, but he, he, he didn't read the passage the way it was written. And at this point, while everyone is looking at him, Jesus sits down. Now that's significant too, because the one who sits down is the one who intends to teach. He assumes now the posture of a teacher. And in verse 21, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me give you the Kavakas paraphrase on this. Jesus is saying, today everything changes. Today, everything you've been waiting for begins, and it will begin in and through me. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So it all sounds good so far. Folks are amazed, not necessarily at what he's saying, but at the rhetoric at the way that he's saying it. But there's some doubt. Another paraphrase. They're saying, well, he's a pretty good speaker, but don't we know this guy? Isn't he the son of Joseph? I mean, they all knew the birth circumstances. And what's really implied here is, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. Does he have any proof? Is there going to be any sign that what he says is valid? So Jesus has proposed that the folks of Nazareth believe him. And maybe, not unreasonably, they want to know why they should. They've heard some of the things about Jesus, but some of the things he did in Capernaum, and, and we, we can read about them in Mark 2 and, and John chapter 4. Maybe he should do the same thing here. Well, Jesus knows this. And here's how he responds in verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, at this point, Jesus claims the title of prophet. It's not the only title he's going to claim, but this is where he starts out. And all everyone knows that prophets are sent by God. But Jesus is saying, these people in Nazareth 
aren't going to listen to me. I'm a prophet, but they're not going to listen to me. And you could, you could see their reaction would be, well, that's ridiculous. We're the people of God. We always listen to God. And, and so just in case they're not getting what Jesus is saying, he gives them a reminder of their history. And that starts in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now you can read about this in 1 Kings 17. And when the heavens were shut up, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, so there's trouble in Israel, verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a video, widow. So, Jesus goes in this time of trouble to a Gentile. And then in verse 27, Jesus continues, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha, 2 Kings 7. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. Jesus shows the people in Nazareth that God sends his prophets to Gentiles when his own people refuse to listen to him. So while being reminded uh, that some of their most respected prophets deliver messages and healing to Gentiles, that gets the guys upset. And the further implication is that Jesus is going to do the same thing. It's, it's as if Jesus is saying to this group gathered here in Nazareth, you guys are worse than Syrian lepers and Phoenician widows. So I'll go to the Gentile. Well, that's the last straw for these people. Have you ever gotten to the point to where it's the last straw for you and God? To where you've had expectations of what he would do? And maybe he's not doing it the way you thought he, he should do it? And you, you, you start to give up hope? These guys didn't give up hope. They, they got angry. They turned against Jesus. Verse 29, 28. When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. I've got a picture of this cliff. And it is incredibly deep and tall. About 1,500 feet from the top of the cliff down to the bottom. I'll show it to you tomorrow. But passing through their mist, he went away. So the crowd is so incensed that they want to kill him. And Jesus leaves. He walks away. Now, a lot of people think this is a miracle, and we need to be kind of careful. It, it might not be. Uh, we don't want to read too much into that, but there's something going on here. There's something very unusual happening. And if we're so wrapped up in trying to figure out how Jesus walked away, we might miss the primary point of these few verses right here. Because there's a story in this rejection, one that reaches all of us. If you believe in him, in faith, you're with him. If you don't, if you reject him, well, he leaves. 
Jesus kind of gives a hint to the correct response towards who he is in his safe departure. Those who reject him aren't hurting Jesus. And the funny thing about it is if, if you understand how crowds work, you know that as Jesus walks away from them and, and departs from them in whatever manner he does it, that they're left empty and angry and unfulfilled and frustrated. And the message is without Christ, you're left to your own devices. And the world isn't going to make sense and your expectations are going to be dashed and, and you're, going to be in, you're going to end up being frustrated and maybe angry. And oddly enough, the proof that these people want actually occurs, according to Luke's narrative, a little more than 20 miles away. And this is where we see the demonstration of who Christ is. Verse 31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. This is right on the shores of the, the uh, Sea of Galilee and the northern shores of it. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So he's doing the same thing. He's gone to the synagogue, he's teaching in the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, these people have the same type of astonishment at Jesus' rhetoric as the people in Nazareth had. But the ones in the synagogue in Nazareth wanted proof. And notice, these people aren't asking for proof. They have no preconception of who Jesus is. They have no expectations of what he will do. It's their simple acceptance that puts things into motion. And look what happens. Verse 33. And in the synagogue, now watch the phrasing here. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, this is... This is endemic to the story here. This is important. Where was the man who had the unclean demon? He was in the synagogue. And so there's a bigger message here. Jesus is going to heal the man, but really what we're seeing is that Jesus has come to cleanse God's people. He hasn't come to take care of all these people outside and the Romans and so on and so forth. He's come to cleanse his bride, to cleanse his church. So Jesus walks into the synagogue and he's teaching and there's this unclean demon and the demon cries out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? The demon knows where he's from. The demon doesn't have any misconceptions about who he is. Where are you from, Jesus of Nazareth? And, and the demon does this to make sure that we all understand that he's talking to the right Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the demon says, the Holy One of God. The demons know who Christ is. And the people in the synagogue that have some regard for his teaching, hear it. So when Jesus is baptized, God says, you're my son. And you're well pleased. And the people hear it. And now the world, the dominion of Satan, acknowledges who Christ is. And there are witnesses there. The demons call him the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in their midst. And he came out of him, having done him no harm. 
So there in Capernaum, Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over Satan and all of his demons. And at the same time, he shows God's people that they too need to be cleansed. And he's the one that is capable of cleansing them. Verse 36, and they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So there in Capernaum, Jesus demonstrates who he is, demonstrates what his power is, and they believe it. And they become his messengers. They become agents of the message that Jesus has, and his message is the gospel. So we see these three reactions. We, we, we see this proclamation, this rejection as a result of the proclamation, and then we see the demonstration of who Christ is. And if we understand what happened in the story, we understand that the Nazarenes, they expected a different Jesus. They weren't expecting this Jesus who'd come to them. Certainly weren't expecting to be cleansed. And they didn't like hearing about themselves. They, they didn't like hearing about their ancestors. And, and they wanted proof before they believed. They wanted some sign, some wonder before they believed. Pip expected a different outcome too, didn't he? He thought that all these riches would make him happy, and they didn't. But in the process, Pip, in finding out that his expectations wouldn't make him happy, Pip, at the end of the story, becomes a, a better man. Pip examines his expectations and decides to discard them and embrace what's been set before. He's had some loss. He's had some disappointments, but ultimately he decides that he will accept what's been put on his plate. Instead of being disappointed or angry, instead of being upset that things didn't go the way he thought they would go, he decided that he could be content in the circumstances he was in. The Nazarenes, isn't that the mistake they made? They... They refused to re discard their expectations. They refused to set aside their preconceptions. And they got angry when things didn't go the way they expected them to do, the, the way they wanted them to go. So as we see those two contrasts, we go back to what do we expect? What do you expect? Will we like the Nazarenes get upset and angry if our expectations are not met? Or will we, like Pip, learn from our experience? Will we accept Jesus on faith, not demanding proof and not even expecting it? Hard questions. But now is a time for that to be tested, isn't it? Is our faith in Christ in a time like this? Do we understand the promises he's made to us? Do we believe him? Do we understand what we're called to? Do we understand what we're equipped for? Do we understand what our part 
in a world beset by coronavirus is. And do we know that regardless of what the world thinks of this, that Jesus is here to cleanse and deliver? Maybe us. That all the things that happen to us are for our good and for God's glory, even if they might be painful in the meantime. There's a lot of anger and frustration out there. A lot of people that are lonely and isolated. Tension begins. Same type of crowd that the people in Nazareth were, and they rejected him. Well, those in Capernaum who accepted his teaching and authority were amazed at what he did, and they became messengers of his teachings and of his power. Now, the difference between you and me as believers in Christ and the people in Capernaum is that their enthusiasm was temporary. I mean, in the end, Jesus goes to the cross alone. You see, and and because we have been regenerated, because we have been reborn, our situation is eternal. The Holy Spirit in us will cause us to be with God for all of eternity. And so that means that we have become eternal messengers of the power and the authority and the grace and the mercy and the glory of God. We're bearers of the love of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for showing us these locations and these things that happen in them, Father. We thank you for the previous message that Jesus has already fought this battle for us and we don't have to fight it. So we thank you that we can find our rest, that we can find our peace in you. We don't have to struggle with expectations and anger and frustration. All we have to do is be content in your presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We pray, Father, that you would lead us in that. Father, that we would turn our eyes away from the world and all of the fear and apprehension and anxiety that's out there and worship you daily, Father, moment to moment, Lord, that our eyes might be fixed upon you, that our minds might be set on things above, Father, and that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.